So we're PowerPointless tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we are resuming our study of uh, the life of David. And 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we're going to do 11 and 12, and some of Psalm 51. Uh, maybe, I think, sometimes consider David's worst moment. Probably not. This is not probably not David's worst moment. Uh, I would say maybe civil war with his son might be worse than this. Uh, perhaps the census that ends up with thousands of Israelites dead might be worse than this. Uh, but this is, I think, maybe the most personal, sinful moment that we have of David. And the reason the story is so interesting is it is a sin that is committed, that then is confronted, and then we also get the consequence, and we also get the response of forgiveness. We get all of the elements of this, the, tempt from the temptation, through the, through the act, through the consequence, through the response, through the redemption. We get the entire gamut of this sin uh, of David and Bathsheba. And as you look in your Bibles, of course, you'll see in uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel 11, of course, the heading. You may have different sorts of headings. David and Bathsheba. Now that I've told you to turn to 2 Samuel 11, mark that and go to James. James chapter uh, 1, as we are, are emphasizing in the story... The compounding nature of sin. This is what we see in this story. From the temptation, then the sin, first sin, then there's a second sin, then there's a cover-up, then there's an attempted cover-up. This, all this, this comes out of one temptation. And so I want to read James chapter 1 as we begin. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This sequence of events. The sequence of events that begins with... Ooh, I can wander around. I'm not tied to this monitor. Uh, the sequence of events that begins with temptation. Lured and enticed by what? Your own desire. And we're going to see that in 2 Samuel 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. The thing that begins this is his desire, a sexual desire, but it could be in, in sin, other sins, other desires, that what? When it, what does he say here? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is grown, brings forth death. And what we're going to see in the life of David, this particular story of David, the original conception, the, the desire that David has that eventually does lead to death, literally death in Two instances, actually more than two instances this story, because he allows his desire to dictate his actions. But then because of that initial time, then he has to keep doing bad things over and over. That's what sin does. It compounds on itself. So back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll read a few of these verses as we go. 2 Samuel 11, we're not going to read all of their verses, but we'll read a lot of it. Uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What did James say? Each is lured and enticed by his own desire. We see this immediately. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and he came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from the uncleanness, and she returned to her house. House, and then the kicker of this. If this, if verse 5 was not in the text, David probably gets away with it. Nobody ever knows that's the end of it. But verse 5, of course, and the woman conceived and she told David, hey, I'm pregnant. 
that was the thing that eventually is going to lead to uh, all of the consequences of this story. And we see this, right? What, what, what's happening here? The, the immediate temptation. A couple of things to note about this. So it says he's on the king's, the roof of the king's house, which, you know, you're trying to set the stage. Presumably it was up high and you're thinking, you know, I've heard this before, Bathsheba, she shouldn't have just been bathing by herself out there all naked. It's very possible that she was isolated from all of her surrounding people, right, on the same level of the town. And then, of course, David, he's got this mansion. He's up there on the roof and he can sort of see over all the houses. And it's possible she wasn't really thinking about that. The second thing to note about this is the double layer of sin where it says in verse uh, verse 4, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Uh, there's a, a several different verses in Leviticus, of course, about that particular time of the month for women and, and what that entailed for their uh, purity and their sacrifices and the things they had to do in that nature. So not only does David K. seize this situation, but then he has to plan. It's one thing to just see it. And if he was just right there by Bathsheba, he sees Bathsheba, he, he acts on the desire, and that was it. Okay, we could understand that maybe perhaps it's not a, it's a horrible thing still, but no, he sees Bathsheba, and then he has to plan, because she's far away. So he's got to go find out who she is, then he's got to send for her. At any point in this cycle, this, this could have been days, at any point in this cycle he could have realized, hey, I shouldn't be doing this. At any point, he could have broken out of it. But this is a prolonged thing that he is engaging in here. Now, the thing, another thing to note about this as we think about his sin here. Let's see here. The power imbalance. One of the things, of course, that made David, uh, allowed David to commit this sin, and, and of course the compounding sin of Uriah later on, is he's in the position of authority. He's in the position of power. And again, we think to ourselves, okay, Bathsheba, what, what part does she play in this? She certainly does bear some responsibility. And yet, at the same time, if the king tells you to come to the palace, what are you going to do? Well, you kind of have two options, right? I'm either going to go or I'm going to maybe be put to death or put in jail. And we have to remember, again, one of the things that makes this so bad for David, we've already seen he's already got a couple wives, right? Uh, he's got Abigail. He's got uh, Micah. Of course, he's not really being very kind to Micah at this moment, but he's already got a couple wives. He doesn't need another wife. He doesn't need another woman. And in fact, what did the commandment say about the kings way back when? that your king shall not accumulate for himself many wives. We just see this thing compounding one thing after another with David. Just a really bad situation. We keep reading then. So what happens? David sent word to Joab. Uh, the, the, the sin happens and then there's this pregnancy. So now we're getting to the second layer of sin. He does the bad thing. And if nobody ever knows about it, so be it. He moves on. But because of the pregnancy, it's going to be very obvious. So we see the first desire is a sexual desire. The second desire that leads to temptation is a desire of pride, isn't it? I don't want people to know I did this thing. I don't want it to get out. I don't want people to know what's happened. So I've got to figure out some way to hide it. How am I going to hide it? How am I going to hide it? And what does he do then? Let's read this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And basically, we're not going to read it, Uriah, he brings Uriah to town and is hoping maybe Uriah will have relations with his wife and then they'll think the baby is his and nobody's going to question it and we're going to be good and everything's going to be covered and nobody will ever know. But what's the problem? The problem is Uriah is a good dude. Uriah, who is a soldier on the front lines, what happens? When they told David, verse 10, Uriah did not go down to his house, that is, he did not go and sleep with his wife. 
David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. All my buds, all my war, war buddies, all my fellow comrades, they're out in the open field. They're sleeping in tents and on the ground. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh, oh, Uriah, who ultimately is the good guy, right? He's the hero of the story, the, 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 the upstanding person who does not want to have advantage, uh, have any, not advantage, have a benefit that his fellow soldiers don't. They're all sleeping on the ground out in the open field. Why, why should I come back here and do this thing? I'm not going to do this. I'm going to have solidarity with my fellow soldiers. And so what? So how, now we've reached uh, a, another crossroads for David. It's going to be obvious. David, Uriah's not going to do the thing. Now, David has a couple options here. He could confess to Uriah, right? He could just do that. Uriah, I've done this thing. It was really bad. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry I did it. What are we going to do about it? He could co-confess to the priests, make things right, right? He could say, okay, it's going to come out. Uh, I did this thing. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry I did it. But no, what does he decide to do? Well, the thing, the, the second major sin of this, as we keep reading... Then the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In their letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back that he should be struck down and die. Then Joab sent and told, uh, this is verse 18, all the news about the fighting. He instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news. Then if the king anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not, uh, uh, and he goes on to say here, what ends up happening? Joab does this, goes out to the fighting, withdraws, but Uriah is not the only one who dies. Jerubasheth is another guy who dies in this fighting. David commands Joab to do something that is tactically unsound, right? It's not good. It's a bad strategy. I'm going to go over to this place. They've got archers on the walls. And jo Joab thinks David's going to be mad because I did this thing and it, was, it led to death of all these soldiers. And, and Joab's basically saying, David, you told me to do this. And, and David, of course, did. So not only does it lead to the death of Uriah, but it leads to the death of some of Uriah's comrades, his fellow soldiers, other guys that would not have died if David had not told Joab to do this militarily poor strategy because ultimately what is David wanting to do? He's wanting to murder Uriah. Let's call it what it is. This is murder, isn't it? He's wanting to kill Uriah. Now he can do it by proxy because he's the king and this goes back to David's power. A lot of this story goes back to David's power. He can have sex with Bathsheba because he's the king. She's not going to reject him. He can ultimately kill Uriah with clean hands because he's the king. He can order a situation to come about. But again, this is a, a corrupt use of power, right? He's the one responsible for Uriah's death. And here's the question. We think about the compounding nature of sin. What ends up happening when we want something so bad, we won't take no for an answer, we, we just have to have it, whatever it is. Again, it could be sex, but it could be something else. It could be any number of things. When we just refuse to let go of it, not only does it lead to one sin, but a lot of the times it leads to like three or four or five different sins. Some of which may be totally unconnected to the first one, but because we did the first thing, now we have to cover it up, now we have to keep lying, now we have to keep maintaining, now we have to keep doing whatever it was. And before you know it, you're way down the rabbit hole of sin. Covered in the muck and the mire 
because you just couldn't let go of the first thing. If you could let go of the first thing, it would have been so easy, so much nicer, so much better. But, of course, we do this, don't we? We refuse to let go. Ephesians 5. Turn to Ephesians 5. I have to actually wait for you to turn to Ephesians 5 now because it's not going to be up there. Or maybe you just trust me to read it right. I don't know. Ephesians chapter 5. As we think about the, the compounding nature of sin and why it's so important, the word confession. David, at any number of points in the story, has opportunity to confess, to make things right to avoid making things worse. But to do that, if he wants to avoid making things worse, he wants to get out of it, what is he going to have to do? He's going to have to confess. He's going to have to make things known. Ephesians 5, verse 3, Sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Well, he's already blown that one. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this. Anyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes, of, comes upon the sons of disobedience. We haven't gotten to the wrath of God yet, but it's coming on David, who was covetous and sexually immoral. Covetous of Uriah's wife, sexually immoral. The wrath of God was coming. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light and the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is all found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, and here's where we get to this idea of illumination, things that we want to keep our sin secret. We want to keep it hidden. That's what David's problem was. He did the sin, that was a problem, but then he wanted to keep it secret. He wanted to keep it hidden. He didn't want anybody to know. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. The problem with sin is not just, I don't need that, I'm done with that. The problem with sin is not just the first sin. It's all the things the first sin leads to. Because of our desire, not just for the original object of temptation, but our desire to either appear righteous, to make sure that nobody knows, our desire to keep things secret and hidden. That's why confession is so vital, so important. The way to overcome the compounding nature of sin is to admit guilt so that things can be made right. Which David could have done at any point in the story, but he refused to do it. So we have the confrontation. One of the best stories in the entire Bible, and when I say story, not a Bible story, but a story that's in the Bible. The character in the story is telling a story. 2 Samuel chapter 12 Actually, we really need to go back to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, as she should. When the morning was over, David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And here's the kicker. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The wrath of God that is coming on the sons of disobedience. What happens? The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb 
And when he had brought, uh, when he had, which he had bought, when he brought it up, he, he grew, it, he, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter him, this one lonely little sheep that this guy has that he cherishes so much. And the other guy, of course, is rich. He has whatever he wants. And you can see where this is going, can't you? Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And here's the real kicker, right? Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. David knew it was right. David knew what the right thing was. To be clear, if he had not known what the right thing was, he wouldn't have tried so hard to cover it up, right? If he hadn't had any awareness of what was right and what was wrong... He would have just done whatever he wanted, which is how a lot of corrupt kings end up, right? A lot of corrupt kings, they just do what they want and they don't care about the consequences. The fact that David went to so much trouble to orchestrate this cover-up so that nobody would ever know, he did that because he knew what he had done was wrong. But I've said this before, what is our greatest skill as a species? Self-justification. We rationalize our own sin. But then if you did it, Steve, I definitely know it was wrong if you did it. But if I do the same thing, it's totally fine. That's why Nathan confronts him with this story. He confronts him with the story of what David did. He's the rich man. He has all the things that he could ever want. He has so many things that he could ever desire. But this one guy, a good guy, Uriah, a good man, has his wife. And David instead took his. And David knew immediately that rich man deserves to die. What is he doing? He's denouncing himself, isn't he? He's saying, I deserve to die. Because I'm the guy who did this thing. Which what is what Nathan says, right? Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. How do you think David felt in that moment? When he has been confronted, he knows without a shadow of doubt what he's done is wrong. And now he's been forced to admit it. He's been forced to admit the thing that I did was wrong. Forced to confront the horror of his own sin. And here we come to another crossroads. This story is full of crossroads. He's tempted on the roof. Crossroad number one. Forget it and move on. Or orchestrate some tryst. Crossroad number two. There's a consequence for his sin. Well, I, I could confess and make things right. Or I could try to cover it up. I'm going to call Uriah. Crossroads number three. Uriah's too good of a man. I should probably just confess to him. Or... I could have him killed. Crossroads number four. Confronted with his sin. Without a shadow of doubt. Now it's out. Now it's known. What am I going to do? And here's where we come to the thing that makes David a man after God's own heart. Is how he responds to this confrontation. Now, before we get to that, I want to note. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through... Uh, really all the way through verse... 12 is Nathan's uh, denunciation of David's work, his, his condemnation, his punishment. And I want to uh, point out a few phrases in this. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king. I gave you, verse 8, master's house, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If it were too literal, I would have added more. You just had to ask, David. I would have given you other stuff. I would have given you more. You have so much. Essentially, what is he asking? 
Why are you so greedy? Why are you so selfish? And we think about ourselves. How much we have relative to human history, oh, so much. But it's not enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. We want more, 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 more. Why are you so selfish, David? Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David's sin was a demonstration that he did not care about what God had said, right? That's what all sin is. All sin is a demonstration that I do not care about what God's word says. Now, we rationalize it. We justify it. We bury those feelings deep down. Ultimately, we know, yes, God, or, or David did like God's word. David has all the Psalms about the word of the Lord and all those things. But in the moment, he hated it. Hated the word of the Lord. Despised the word of the Lord that told him, don't do this thing. Don't, don't be adulterous. Don't, don't do these things. Don't take, from your, don't take your neighbor's wife. Don't accumulate for yourselves many wives, directed at kings specifically. And his actions demonstrated that he did not like God's word, which is what we all do, right? I really like most of the Bible, except for this one command. This one command in here that says I can't do whatever it is that I want to do. Whatever that is, right? So what do we do? We forget it, we bury it, we justify it, we rationalize it. What are we doing when we do that? We are demonstrating to God, I hate what you've said. I despise what you have said. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do my own thing. Verse 10. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Verse, uh, let's see here. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. So, not only did he despise the word of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, he had demonstrated to God what? I, I don't like you. I've scorned you. And so when we think about it, we have to have this idea in our minds about sin. Sin. We, we have all these justifications and rationalizations and I'm going to do all these things and I want to do what I want to do. But at the end of the day, when we choose to sin, what are we saying to God? I don't like what you've said and I don't like you. I don't love you anymore. At least not temporarily. Temporarily I don't love you. Because I just want to do what I want to do. Whatever it is. Leading ultimately to death. Now the consequence. What were the consequences that were listed? Uh, verse... Uh, 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil for you out of your own house. I will take your wives. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. Verse 14. Nevertheless, by this deed, because by this deed you have scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So we see what? The punishment. Civil war, unfaithfulness. Ultimately, what did James say? Sin, when it is fully grown brings forth death. In this case, very literally death. The death of his son. Death of Uriah, that's already happened. That was the thing that he did that was sinful. And so we come to the, the conundrum here, the conundrum of this story. How can we rationalize? How can we come to grips with this idea that this child is going to die? Child's not to blame, right? We understand the child's not at fault. It's not the child's fault that David did this. But what we have to, I think, remember, keep in mind, the thing that is hard for us to remember is that physical life is not God's highest priority. It never has been, right? Physical life is not the highest priority to God. What is the highest priority to God? Eternal life, isn't it? And as much as it's hard for us to understand or accept this, that child, I'm very confident, we will meet in heaven. 
won't we? So the, the difficulty here of someone bearing a punishment for the sin of someone else. It's difficult because we see it explicitly here, but we understand, of course, that this happens all the time. The people bear the consequences for sins they did not commit. But ultimately, the consequence this child bore for the sake of David was a temporary consequence. Not eternal. Not forever. Because the child, of course, we know, will be with God forever. James 4, 1 through 6. Back to James. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The attitude of David that we have to avoid. James 4, 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Isn't that what David did? He desired, now, he did, uh, ultimately did have. Now, what he did not have was secrecy. He did not have social standing. He, it was going to be known. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. Isn't that exactly what he said to David? If you had wanted more, just ask. I would have given it to you. Why were you selfish and taking from him? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What did he say to David? You have despised the word of the Lord. Harsh language. For a guy who wrote several psalms about how much he loves God's word, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have scorned the Lord. When we sin, we said this this morning, we become God's enemy. Regardless of whether that was our intent or not, we become God's enemy. What makes us sin? What causes us to sin? Again, it's our desires. The things that lead us into temptation that we ultimately ask us to, we give in. And again, what did James say? The end of those things is death. Probably not physical death for most of us, but rather, unlike the child, the consequence for us will be eternal death. Separation from God. Unless what? We have to conclude the story with David's reaction. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's simple. Simple statement. No heaven, no Han, no bargaining, no excuses, no nothing. Now, we can contrast to this as we have several times with Saul, his example of, of making excuses and passing the buck and trying to blame other people. David doesn't do any of that. I have sinned. I've sinned. This is what he should have done three or four times during the story. Could have done it at any time. And I suspect if he had done this at any time during the story, the child would not have died. That would not have been the consequence. But at least eventually, he does make the right decision. So we come to Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, which if you have headings in your Bible, again, the, the, the superscriptions are not uh, in the text itself. They are supplied. But traditionally, this psalm associated a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And what does he say as we read Psalm 51? We see, if you want to break the cycle of sin, 
the compounding nature of sin. That you commit one sin and then you have to commit another and another and it builds and it builds and it, the consequences spread out like a, like a ripple, like a wave, don't they? Consequence for one sin, but then I had to add another one so there's more consequence and then I have, to, I have to keep going and going and going unless I am willing to do what? This is the only way to break the cycle. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What was his judgment? Your son will die. And what's David's response? You're blameless because it was my fault. I am the one who sinned. And so you are justified in your words. Is this the attitude? that we have towards sin and its consequence in our lives. Understanding that our suffering in large part is a result of sin. Sometimes ours, but as we've seen, sometimes not ours. But understanding that we live in a world where God allows the consequences of sinful behavior. That there is suffering and difficulty and problems because people continue to sin. And if we are not willing to admit our sins and our transgressions, to take full responsibility, we cannot get out of that cycle of continual sin and suffering and sin and suffering and sin and suffering. Confession and repentance is the only way out. And what enabled David to continue, even though he had to live with the consequences of the sin, right? The child's never coming back in this life. He knows that. But then the other consequences, right? The civil war. The thing that he would raise. You know, the sword will never depart your house. You'll always be in conflict. Those are consequences he had to deal with forever. The rest of his life. But he admits that that's his fault. And so a couple of things about Psalm 51 as we wrap this up. The phrases I really want to emphasize here. You delight in truth in the inner being, verse 6. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart, verse uh, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What does David understand? Well, we go back to our phrase. A man after God's own heart. He understood. It was not enough to make reparations. It was not enough to even stop doing the things. It was not enough to make excuses and to hem and to haw. What did God want? He wanted change in our hearts. That's what he wants today. He wants us to admit that we are wrong, that we need his cleansing, we need his purity, and to mean it. To want to be different, not just in what we do, but to be different in who we are. And until we are willing to be broken with God, we cannot be made pure. 
until we are willing to admit to him and perhaps to others the depths of our sin and our brokenness, our need for his forgiveness, then we will continue in the cycle of sin and consequence and sin and consequence. Only by repentance and confession can we find our way out. Not that the consequence will totally go away. As we said, David still had to deal with the consequence. But he was still enabled to have a relationship with God and to be righteous because he was willing to take responsibility for his sin. So as we conclude, we offer the invitation. Not just an invitation to become a Christian, but an invitation if you are in a cycle of brokenness, a cycle of sin that you can't seem to get out of, that you've, you've, you've succumbed to temptation, uh, maybe it was decades ago, and it's just kept building, and you've had to build this whole orchestrated lie to keep going with your sin, and now it's creating all sorts of problems. I know that happens. It happens to David. It, it definitely can happen to us. But you have an opportunity tonight to break the cycle. If you're willing to confess, to take responsibility, to repent. He's willing to forgive, isn't he? He's willing to forgive.